The following podcast contains strong language and adult themes and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Behold, Behold. the annals of pestilence. The stories you're about to hear are not real, though they contain elements of the truth. The tales herein might entertain you, cause you to smile, or perhaps cry, or something else entirely. Because this anthology of narratives, some of them connected, others less so, acts as a door to another realm. You are about to board an interdimensional cruise ship en route to comedy, tragedy, and unspeakable cosmic horror. This one-way journey is powered by existential dread and nervous laughter. Once boarded, there is no turning back. The stories you are about to hear are an infection, a narrative Contagion, the word virus. Season 3, Punk Rock vs. the Lizard People, Apprentices. Punk Rock vs. the Lizard People is currently available in its unabridged entirety as a novel by Joshua S. Porter. Order the book today on Amazon.com. This story references songs available on playlists through Apple Music and Spotify by searching Punk Rock vs. the Lizard People. Part 3. Apprentices This book must be given to the pupil. I then become the master. I am not worthy, but there is no one else here. Jerry, enemy mine. Mod Log 16. Welcome to Gaina. Seven days until all hell breaks loose. I woke up feeling like I'd nearly drowned and then washed up on an alien beach. My head was throbbing, my body felt like it had been hit by a truck, and my tongue felt thick and uncooperative in my dry mouth. And that wasn't the full extent of how biology had betrayed me. Drifting slowly from the gelatinous quagmire of instantaneous space travel, I could hear one of the girls' voices as they went from muffled to audible, saying, Geez, someone pinched Danny. Apparently he's having a particularly good dream. Then I was being hoisted to my feet, and I could hear Connor's voice saying, Give him a break. It's biological. Happens virtually every time you sleep. Struggling to stand upright, though other parts of me seem to have no such trouble, I did my best to steady myself, fumbling clumsily at my body in an effort to cover my shame. What happened? I was trying to say, but it sounded like I was fighting against a mouthful of peanut butter. I think we're in the other harbor. Paul was saying, apparently making sense of my mush mouth. No one got disintegrated. But we still don't have clothes, Becky yelled out to whoever was listening. Not all of us are as excited about it as Danny seems to be. I attempted a sophisticated defense, but the word biology 
sloppily enunciated, was all that came. The harbor's door suddenly slid open with a gentle hum, giving the whole group an awful start, and we all froze for a moment, not sure what to expect. My vision restored to me now. I wasn't sure we'd gone anywhere at all. This room seemed identical to the one before. Or had the jump scrambled my memory of what had just happened? I started to speak up. What should we... Before I could get the slow, pained words out, the door to the room slid open, and an emi, garbed in a uniform we'd never seen, stepped in. The seven of us inched backward, all driven by the same reflex. But when the emi spoke, it was Isaiah's voice. Is everyone, you know, alive? Barely, I said. Alive, but naked, Emma fussed. Oh, right. Isaiah said, scratching his head. I guess we didn't put the clothes you were wearing through the transport, did we? The realization hit us all simultaneously. What the hell, Isaiah? Barrett said. I hope your whole planet is a nudist colony. We did send, uh... Isaiah began slowly, finding the words. What did you call them? Bras? Oh, well, great, Emma groaned. My naked rear end will be exposed for all of Gaina, but hey, I'll have a bra. Would you relax? Isaiah huffed. We have clothes, I told you, lots of them. Well, where are they? I yelled, losing my patience. On the base, Isaiah said. Is that not where we are? Paul spoke up, confused. Not yet. Isaiah said, suddenly looking all around as if only now remembering where he'd been standing. We're in the feed camp. We have to escape without notice, then make our way to the base. The naked humans looked at one another, baffled. Isaiah, dude, Connor began calmly, having given up on the whole discretion thing and no longer covering himself at all. Is this real? Are you serious? Let's just have everyone calm down and please tell us exactly what's going on. The display seemed lost on Isaiah, who only repeated what he'd just said. Dude, Jade whispered to Connor, cover that thing up, man. Connor rolled his eyes theatrically, but obliged Jade's request. Don't feel threatened, man, Connor said. Escaping the feed camp will be easy, Isaiah said. I've stolen a guard's uniform. He gestured at his strange outfit, looking very proud, then seemed to be waiting on a reaction of some kind. Looks, uh, looks nice, Paul finally said. This satisfied Isaiah, who nodded in agreement. But are there clothes here? Becky interrupted, clearly frustrated. Not here, Isaiah confessed. But once we get out of the camp and to the transport, we'll be at the base in no time. So we just have to sneak out of another facility, only this time naked, said Barrett. It'll be easy, Isaiah promised. Though we were grateful we'd thought to bring a few jackets and that they were big enough to cover most of the girls' nakedness, we were all still pissed at ourselves for leaving our clothes on the ground in the Shyad Center. Don't be so dramatic, Becky sighed, zipping my denim jacket, her long, freckled legs the only thing uncovered. At least it's easier for you guys to hide your stuff. Our hands weren't doing us much good. It's true, Connor shrugged. I saw everything. Emma punched him in the arm. 
looking simultaneously hilarious and painfully attractive in Barrett's puffy red vest, which fit her like an enormous life jacket. At least it's not cold, I suggested half-heartedly, but no one seemed comforted by the power of positive thinking. No one warned me we'd be getting all wet, Emma complained, wringing her hair out. Are you guys done complaining about the nudity? Isaiah grumbled, approaching the door. I swear, the only mammals that wear clothes and you act like you're so special for it. Easy for you to say, Becky countered, Mr. Fancy Uniform over here. Isaiah examined his outfit as if seeing it for the first time, saying quietly to himself, I guess it is fancy. Are we doing this? Barrett yelled. All right, Isaiah said, a hand up to shush Barrett. Here's the plan. You guys are feed camp prisoners. Follow me and, I don't know, act like prisoners, I guess. What the hell is a feed camp prisoner anyway? Connor asked, all of us whirling around to face him, then turning just as quickly to face Isaiah, awaiting an answer to this very valid question no one had thought to ask. This is where the NARS slab was created and is tested on human participants. Wait, Jade began. So there are humans here just sitting around using that little computer thing? Yeah, Isaiah nodded as if no further explanation was necessary. I'm sorry, Becky snorted. And how is this a scary prisoner type situation? You'll see, Isaiah said dismissively, fanning his clawed hand and placing it on the door's shining white surface. I expected to hear the approving chime I'd become familiar with over the last few hours, but instead, there was an ear-splitting explosion of white noise from behind us. Huddling together instinctively, we all turned to see the previously empty harbor in the room's center, now frosted with steam and illuminated from within with dozens of snaking electric filaments. Your butt is on my leg, someone said impatiently. Dude, watch out, you're totally backing into my crotch, someone else warned. One of the girls yelped, Isaiah, watch your tail! The thick gray vapor dissipated as if drained by an exhaust fan, revealing two crumpled, naked figures within the harbor, all of us leaning forward nervously. The inorganic transport stationed beside the harbor suddenly hummed to life and with a blast of white light revealed a hastily crumpled pile of clothes. Ah, shit, Barrett hissed. It's Bradley Press and Flynn Hardy. The entire group leaned out even further, squinting in disbelief. Whoa, Emma exclaimed. Seriously, Isaiah, watch the tail. It was an accident. Don't flatter yourself, Isaiah scoffed. The human shapes within the harbor, both of them pale, soaking wet, face down on the smooth white surface, slowly stirred to life, staggering to their feet like newborn fawns. Ah, jeez. Becky said, covering her eyes. Both of them? Biology, Connor reminded her. Bradley and Flynn seemed to realize where they had arrived quickly enough and lurched toward the harbor door, which slid open for them like an automatic entrance at a grocery store. No one spoke as they went straight for the transport, retrieved their wadded outfits, and slowly dressed themselves like a couple of drunks. It was Barrett who broke the bizarre silence. What the hell are you two doing here? They turned to his voice, shocked, apparently unaware of our group until that moment. Nice try, Flynn slurred, pulling a fashionable little button-up over his arms. 
we saw you guys adventuring and we knew we couldn't let an opportunity like this be completely wasted by a bunch of geeks with no NARS connections. Dude, that reminds me, Bradley said to Flynn as he buttoned his perfect little stonewashed jeans. We should get a NARSy before we forget. Coolness, Flynn replied. In one synchronized motion, they both reached into their pockets and retrieved their NARS slates, extending them out at arm's length, smiling moronically. The synthetic camera shutter sound repeatedly erupted from both devices. Sweet, merciful crap, Paul sighed. You have to go back, I declared. You two lame brains have no clue what's going on here. We're not here for NARS pictures. Not pictures that anyone is going to see, anyway, Flynn sniggered. I'm serious, damn it, I said. Get back in the harbor. I turned to Isaiah. We may have to force them. Can you, you know, dial in the coordinates or whatever? It doesn't work that way, Isaiah said. These harbors only go in one direction. What? Becky gasped. So how are we supposed to go home? A different harbor, Isaiah said, turning to her. I told you, these harbors utilize wormholes. There's only so much we can do to manipulate such a phenomenon. We can't exactly jump back and forth at will. There's planning that goes into it. Timing, specific harbor coordination, that sort of thing. Well, great, Barrett declared. What do we do with these twits? Neither Bradley nor Flynn took any notice of our conversation. They were both too busy moving about the harbor room, taking turns posing for photos, then meticulously reviewing the results, making thoughtful-sounding grunts and saying things like, I don't like my hair in that one, and let me try that one again. They have to come with us, Isaiah admitted, sighing deeply. There's another harbor somewhere in the camp, but I can't find it without intelligence from the rebel base. There was a collective groan from the group. We're wasting time, Isaiah snapped. We need to go, now. Jade clapped his hands, apparently popping whatever bubble in which these two were operating. All right, you narcissistic jackasses, come on. We've got to get out of here. So get out, Flynn shrugged, not taking his eyes off his precious little device. Hey, Brad, how wicked is this? I'm checking my NARS from another planet, dude. This is a prisoner camp, Isaiah announced. If they catch you here without us, they'll lock you up and torture you. Who will? Bradley asked, his voice quivering. You guys are lying, Flynn insisted. They're lying, he whispered to Bradley. Bye, said Isaiah, punching in a code that opened the door. Best of luck, jackoffs. We'll go with you guys. Flynn said, as if the decision had been entirely his. But we're going to need to stop for pictures. You guys might not care about making a difference, but we want to change the world. Oh, for the love of... said Barrett, still standing there naked, cupping his unmentionables. At least give us some of your clothes. What? Flynn balked, recoiling. No way, get your own threads, bro. Are you kidding me? Barrett asked matching Flynn's noteworthy height. We've got nothing, and the girls have nothing but jackets. No kidding, Bradley sneered, eyeing Becky and Emma with a lecherous grin. Nice. Barrett leaned forward, his voice calm and even. That's your one strike, he informed them, a finger raised. 
They both fell silent. Stepping out into the feed camp, I was immediately seized by the depth of the area beyond the harbor room. Not unlike the Shyad Center, the facility was arranged with perfect symmetry, but the chamber itself must have been several hundred thousand square feet. The entire place was covered in the same opulent white material, the outer perimeter of the chamber something like an open walkway. The room's center consisted of hundreds of rows of humans seated in futuristic-looking white chairs shaped to accommodate their reclining bodies. Each of what I assumed was the camp's prisoners were hooked to an IV that disappeared into the ground beneath them, every single one of them utterly engrossed in a NARS slate. No one seemed to notice our strange parade of mostly naked humans, even though everyone else was dressed in matching white scrubs like we'd seen on Stuart Raffle, the mysterious prisoner at the Shyad Center. Isaiah, Emma whispered as we moved slowly along the wall, the first row of prisoners only ten feet away. What's happening in here? Every prisoner in the feed camp remains voluntarily committed, though only ostensibly so. He gestured at one specimen as we passed, a teenager with his gaze fixed on the slate in a near-catatonic trance, his mouth slack and drooling. Each NAR slate connects to your Earth Internet and our APEP using electromagnetic radiation. Same idea as radio waves. Several stationary transmitters emit pulses of invisible dome-like signals that the slates recognize and decode. So it's just the Internet without a modem. Jade said, our bizarre naked line moving carefully along. Sort of, Isaiah answered, though his tone suggested Jade was way off. Remember, your World Wide Web is just a synthesized version of APEP, so we have to find ways to recreate natural phenomenon with electronics. And APEP is like Gaina's superplanetary mother brain thing? Becky asked, sounding sincere. Isaiah turned and looked at her as if she had just suggested gerbils powered the entire thing. What? she asked defensively. It is, right? 
Yeah, Becky, I sighed. It's basically mother brain from Metroid. That's how the internet works here. What's Metroid? Becky mumbled to no one in particular. Apep is a sentient being that communicates to Emi via invisible wavelengths. Emi have developed technology that recognizes and transmits invisible data, words, images, sounds, using the same scientific principles as Apep. Huh. Becky nodded, her mouth open. I say appointed to the prisoners. The rapid dissemination of new data to NAR slates offers the user a well of information with a bottom that can never be reached. We call this a feed. The more the user cycles through the feed, the more their brains begin to understand the updating of the feed as something like a reward. Like training lab rats, Connor observed. Eventually, the subject will sever bonds to other humans and the outside world in favor of the easier, faster endorphin release that the feed offers. Once this new bond with the machine is complete, the subject becomes addicted. Addicted? Barrett asked, skeptically. To a computer? When the subject achieves full dependence, we designate them hupat aso, which is an Emi word that means they have been driven to submission. Paul giggled. <laughs> aso. Then what? I asked. When the number of prisoners designated Hupat Aso outnumber the paraphernalia, those unlikely to submit, the acquisition of Earth can begin. Damn, said Barrett, less doubtful now. We wouldn't even realize it was happening. I say I looked out on the sea of Nars zombies. They don't, he said. He then paused before an unremarkable space on the blank white wall and unlocked a new door. We stepped into a narrow corridor concluding in a dead end. Relieved, we crowded behind Isaiah, who seemed suspiciously silent all of a sudden. When we reached the end of the hallway, another code was entered, summoning another door. Isaiah exhaled, sounding relieved. I wasn't sure that would work, he said. What do you mean? I asked. The code for the door? No, dude, he chuckled. Getting out of here. There was a good chance that sentries would be stationed in the feed hall. We would have been screwed. Before I could voice my outrage, the door was open, and I felt an immediate swell of surprisingly warm air swirl around my naked body. Whoa! I gasped. I just remembered I'm naked. We haven't forgotten, Connor called from somewhere behind me. Been forced to stare at your butt this whole time. Still cute, Emma assured. We moved outside, amber-colored light flooding our vision forcing everyone but Isaiah to squint and shield their eyes. We were surrounded by endless desert. We'd arrived on what looked like a marble platform, extending out a few feet from the feed camp, which looked like another yuppie mid-century home. The whole thing was surrounded by orange sand. So, Gaina is basically Arrakis? I asked, not impressed. Or Tatooine? Jade suggested. Good grief, said Emma. It's hot out here. So lose the vest, Bradley suggested, reminding us all of his insufferable presence. Barrett leaned toward him. What did I tell you earlier, you little dipshit? Bradley shielded himself with his hands as if he expected to be pummeled. I was just trying to help. Don't be such a spaz. I don't see them. Isaiah said to no one in particular, surveying the rolling dunes that stretched out as far as the eye could see. See who? I asked. Our ride, said Isaiah. 
How the hell would anyone know to pick us up out here? My sentence trailed off as several figures appeared on the horizon, dark blots distorted by the thick haze of hot air. What is that? Becky asked, her hand shading her eyes. Are those... ostriches? The group shuffled forward on the platform to get a better look. Becky was right. It looked like ostriches. There they are, I say aside, relieved. What? Becky asked, spinning around to face him. Our ride? Isaiah smiled. We're riding those? Dude, Jade spoke up. You realize we're all still naked, right? We're not, Flynn reminded us. Shut the hill up, Nimrod, Jade told him. As the creatures came closer, running with the same gait as an ostrich or emu, we realized they were something else entirely. To begin, they were far too big to be ostriches. They were weirder as well. Rather than wings, they had arms and clawed hands. The plumage was an ornate tapestry of bright blue, yellow, and emerald green, a long fan of red feathers running down the middle of their heads. Cool, Connor said. They've got mohawks. Are they dinosaurs? Paul asked anyone listening. Well, we don't call them that here, but yeah, Isaiah answered. Something like what your scientists call ornithomimosaurs, but we call them Gaulish. Gaulish? Becky echoed, pronouncing the word dramatically. Yes, Becky, that's what he said, Barrett pointed out, losing his patience. Well, I don't speak this language, Barrett, Becky shot back, and I'm not exactly thrilled about riding one with no pants or underwear. They have saddles. I pointed out as the Gaulish slowed to a stop in front of the platform. The animals seemed enormous, maybe seven feet tall and ten feet long, feathered except for their scaly hands and feet. Their movements were sharp and agile, like birds, but their jaws were lined with protruding fangs, giving them a strangely lizard-like appearance. Each animal was fitted with a saddle that I assumed was fashioned to accommodate emi anatomy. There's five of them, Paul noticed. Are we doubling up or something? With everyone almost naked? Jade reminded. Barrett gave Flynn and Bradley a look that said, don't even think about opening your stupid mouths. Can we use those blankets? Connor asked, pointing to the elaborately woven coverings draped over each animal's back between their feathers and saddle. Just don't piss them off when you take them, Isaiah warned. The ride is something like two of your earth hours, though they don't exactly pass the same way here, what with the different sun and all. Once we leave, it's best if we don't stop. The base is well hidden, and we don't want to give anyone the opportunity to track us. I braced myself against a strong gust of hot wind, still covering my privates with both hands. Looking around at the group, the guys were all posed like me. The girls in their oversized coats and those two dickhead stowaways fully dressed and looking down at their little portable computers. Certainly, this alien planet had nothing more interesting to offer than whatever was going on with their NARS profiles. We all looked fucking stupid. Readying the caravan for departure was an elaborate undertaking. Isaiah assisted with the removing of saddle blankets, but anyone willing to help had to, one, uncover their nakedness in order to use their hands, and two, behave as though we weren't all terrified of these gaulish things. The girls mostly stood back and squealed, clearly watching, while Barrett and I pulled at the blankets and yelled, Stop looking, dammit! 
How are we supposed to share five blankets with seven people? Emma called out from the platform just as I retrieved the last covering. What do you guys need anything? Jade asked, his voice incredulous. Hello, Becky replied, emphasizing the second syllable. In case you boys have forgotten, we don't exactly have underoos under these jackets. Are we supposed to plant our bare bottoms on those alien saddles? Emma piped in. Barrett and I looked at each other. They had a point, I guess. I didn't know a ton about girl anatomy, but from what I did know, the idea of having your bare butt on a hard alien saddle with sand blowing around everywhere seemed like something of a bummer. Before either of us could suggest anything, Isaiah appeared, reaching for one of the Gaulish saddles and revealing a hidden sheath and a menacing-looking knife inside. The handle was made from something like ivory, with jewels fixed on either side of the cross guard. With surprising efficiency, Isaiah drew the blade and moved it effortlessly through the length of one of the blankets, producing three sizable strips. All right, I yelled. Everyone come put on their loincloths. I don't have loins, Becky reminded me, reaching for one of the strips. If I thought we looked stupid before, our appearance as we were riding these things was abject ridiculousness. The girls shared a gaulish, using the bras they'd insisted on bringing as masks to keep from breathing in the sand swirling over the dunes. Of course, the guys had no such protection, so we just sat there in our little multicolored diapers, squinting and cringing at the relentless gusts of hot air and pebbles. We were grunting and spitting constantly, the girls laughing at our plight, and us laughing at their bra masks and getting a mouthful of sand every time. Sand worked its way beneath the backpack straps cutting into my bare shoulders, and the damn skateboard tucked beneath the pack was rubbing my back raw with every step. I rode with Connor, Jade with Paul, Barrett with Isaiah, and the two tag-along dickweeds sat together, each of them falling from their gaulish several times because they wouldn't let go of their damn nar slates and hold on. Other than the occasional mockery, the coughing and spitting, and the shouting at Flynn and Bradley, we mostly kept quiet and let the animals follow behind Isaiah. There were no reins, and though it seemed likely the Gaulish could really haul ass, we mostly trotted along at a moderate pace doing our best to balance without losing our crudely fashioned undergarments in the process. Moving over the endless dunes toward a horizon we could never seem to reach, I thought I had begun to hallucinate. Isaiah, I said, my voice hoarse. Do you have weird alien turkey birds on Gaina? Isaiah turned to where I was pointing and observed a group of small bird-like animals bobbing along on dunes nearby. 
On Earth, you call their fossil remains Khan. The animals' bodies weren't unlike the Gaulish, more or less ostrich-shaped, but much smaller, about half the height of an adult human, and about five feet long from head to tail. Unlike the Gaulish, the Khan had long, brightly colored fanning tail feathers and two puny wings that ended in long, bony talons. Rather than long, narrow snouts, the Khan had round little heads and broad, flat beaks. With flashy, spiky plumage of emerald green and peacock blue running up their long, S-shaped necks, the little dinosaurs looked otherworldly against the barren desert landscape. What do you call them here? Paul asked. We also call them Khan, Isaiah said. On your planet, the name is a Mongolian word for Lord. It was quiet for a moment, the wind whistling over the sand. Paul looked annoyed that he had to keep asking clarifying questions. Well, what the hell does it mean here? He finally asked. Something like really painful bite, Isaiah said. It's a coincidence. Should they be this close? Becky asked, apprehension in her voice. They won't bother us, Isaiah said, sounding so unconcerned that I felt momentarily calmed. And anyway, they're not the ones we have to worry about here. Well, great, said Barrett. With no way to track the time, I began to suspect the desert might never end. Before I could complain, I caught sight of what looked like some shrubs and small plants somewhere on the horizon where the dunes finally leveled out. No one asked if we were almost there, afraid to hear we weren't even close. As we approached the flat terrain, the sand became hardened and cracked, and the swirling hot air cooled rapidly. Is it getting colder? Paul asked, staring up at a sun that never seemed to move. We're nearing Chion, Isaiah answered without slowing. It's much colder there. What's Chion? Becky yelled, her voice muffled beneath her makeshift mask. It's a region within Saigot, where we are at the moment. Sort of like unique cities within a county or something like that. As Isaiah was saying this, I noticed a single snowflake flutter slowly past, then another, then several more. Exactly how much colder is Chion? I asked. A lot. Tons of snow, Isaiah said. I watched Barrett turn to look behind us, as if to confirm we had indeed been in a desert this whole time. How is that possible? he asked. Weather modification, Isaiah explained. A long time ago, the Chionian elders attempted to make certain regions of the desert more habitable by bringing the temperature down, increasing precipitation, that sort of thing. How, exactly, does one go about that? I asked. I guess I don't know, because it didn't work, Isaiah admitted, gesturing to the increasing density of snowfall all around us. Or it worked too well. You seed the clouds with silver iodine, stuff like that. But the results are unpredictable, and they eventually screwed things up to the point of irreversibility, creating a small frozen wasteland in the middle of the desert. It's mostly just an embarrassment now, which makes it a great place to hide. And why are we wandering into the frozen wasteland? I pressed. I say I turned around for the first time, smiling. That's where the rebel base is.
The Rebel base, unlike the Shyad facilities, did not look like a cool designer yuppie condo. It looked like a dump. Sort of like the Antarctic Research Center from John Carpenter's The Thing. The base was all cold, gray steel, exposed industrial ductwork, and bright orange floodlights. It was a good thing the lights were there, by the way, because the snowfall became so intense that seeing virtually anything was damn near impossible. The whole world swallowed in a cold cloud of white. The building itself was a pretty big square in the middle of the snow, about the size of a department store with a low roof. I say I must have known what we were thinking, and as our brigade of riders all slowed to a stop, taking in the sight before us, he informed the group, eh, most of it is underground. Can we please go inside? Becky moaned, her teeth chattering. The change in temperature had been rapid, and though we might have only been in the snowy region of Chion for a few minutes, all of us were nearing the end of our tolerance for the cold. I'm freezing, Flynn whined, and my narslate isn't working right in the cold. I swear to God, Barrett warned, giving Flynn a menacing scowl. Isaiah moved forward, and our team of Gaulish followed along instinctively. As we arrived at a huge garage door stenciled in Emi's script, Isaiah climbed off his animal and flattened his palm on a blank yellow panel set in the wall, snow gathering on his arm while he waited. There was no chime this time, just a low buzz and a sound like grinding metal as the door slowly elevated. Isaiah ducked under it, leading his Gaulish by the saddle. The rest of the animals moved carefully inside, and Isaiah went to work assisting each of us in our dismounts. Inside, the facility was disappointingly just as I'd expected. A dark, gray corridor of iron, cement, pipes, and dull floodlights. Lining the hallway on either side were a dozen or so small doors, the walkway eventually concluding in what looked like an open freight elevator. At least it was warm. Fancy, said Barrett. Isaiah had a weird smirk on his face. These are the barracks, he said, sounding like a tour guide. They're all the same, and everything you need is inside. Each door should respond to your touch. He pointed to a panel beside the first door. Emma approached it, her hand outstretched, and touched the flat yellow surface. The door responded instantaneously, disappearing into the wall and revealing a small living space inside. We all crowded our heads around the door as Emma stepped into the room. There were bunk beds, a small shower, and toilet, and a closet full of industrial coveralls in various sizes like the crew of the Nostromo War in Alien. Emma opened the first of three drawers lining the bottom of the bunk bed, revealing a collection of packaged toiletries and underwear, including bras. When Paul saw the bras, he tisked knowingly. We still needed them, Becky insisted narrowing her eyes, for the sand and all. And these are ruined now anyway, Emma pointed out, pulling the tangled thing over her head and releasing a cloud of orange dust with a snap of elastic. Okay, great, Becky announced, clapping her hands. Everyone out of my way, I'm going to take a shower and get dressed. Everyone murmured their approval, scattering toward the other doors and activating the entrance panels. Clean up, get dressed, then meet me below, Isaiah shouted over the commotion. We all turned to find him still wearing his strange grin. I've got a surprise for everyone. A few of them.
In order to ensure proliferation of the word virus, you can support our efforts via patreon.com slash the word virus. Lure others to infection by sharing the word virus via social media on Twitter at the word virus and Instagram at spread the word virus and at the word virus.com.